This podcast contains adult themes and is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. If you enjoy this content, please consider following us on Instagram and Twitter at Tales Driftwood. Hello and welcome back to Tales of Driftwood, where story is everything. Today I'll be reading the third chapter of Hyde, and before we jump into things, let me just give you a brief recap of what happened in the previous chapter. Julian and his father had escaped Marcus Sykes in the tunnels of Hyde, and had made it back to the mansion. They regrouped and began to process the loss of their wife and mother. Funeral preparations were made and carried out, and father and son attended the funeral with their loyal butler, Horace. Once at the funeral, they were greeted by several antagonistic forces, Jeffrey Benedict and Lucas Santana. Benedict and Santana both offended and intimidated the family before we met Archer Johnson, a close family friend and very important to the town of Hyde in his own right. The funeral seemed to have gone well until the very end, where in a moment of privacy, Julian and his father discovered that Harmony's body had been desecrated by some unknown person. In a panic, the mayor called for Archer and his entourage and told them they had to enact the plan as they entered their vehicle and sped off towards the mansion. And that is where we will pick up. So I give you Hyde Chapter 3. No looking back. The car ride back to the mansion seemed to last a thousand years to Julian, though in reality it was only ten minutes. He had spent the entire ride with his head buried in the chest of his father, not daring to look up for fear of seeing the face of his mother lying in her grave again. No one in the car had spoken, but Julian judged by the way the car was bouncing around and the yells of pedestrians in the streets that the car was flying by at a speed far higher than what the town was used to seeing. The car quickly screeched to a halt as they pulled up to the mansion, the mayor quickly carrying Julian to the front door while barking orders to Horace about the getaway plan they had discussed. Harold quickly carried Julian up to his room and sat him on the bed. Open your eyes, Julian. Julian clenched his eyes shut even harder and forcefully shook his head back and forth. Open them now, son. His father spoke in a tone Julian knew well. Stern, authoritative, but not angry. Julian now opened his eyes and looked into his father's face. Harold McCoy was holding his head on either side, caressing Julian's straight brown hair. I'm going to leave you alone for a few minutes, son. Horace and I will be getting things together, 
and Archer and the twins will be here any minute. Clyde is bringing a truck in for all of us, and we are all getting out of town for a while. What I need you to do is be brave and fill this bag with anything you want from your room. Anything at all. Just as long as it fits in the bag. Don't worry about clothes and such. I've already taken care of that. Anything in here that is important to you, grab it and throw it in the bag. With that, the mayor gently handed Julian his old satchel that he used frequently to carry books he needed around the town, and quickly exited the room. It took Julian a few moments to snap into action, but once he got moving, he felt as though he was being pulled, as though he was not in control of his own body. His feet carried him to the old china closet that resided in a corner of his room. In this closet, Julian had amassed quite the collection of childhood trophies, from old money to shiny rocks and pieces of colored broken glass he and Adrian had found in the woods on one of their childhood adventures. He also had a few animal skins and claws that his father had given him after several of his hunting trips. Julian furrowed his brow and bit his lip, searching each of the shells for things that he found more important than the other items. He took a step back and marveled at the china closet itself. A beautiful piece of mahogany with carvings on each side. One side was a beautifully carved wolverine. Julian had never seen one in person, but he had read old books with stories of wolverines, and he had decided that they were his favorite animal. And on the other side was a bald eagle, which his father had told him had symbolized freedom and once was the national bird of America. He looked at the closet wistfully, wishing he could simply fold up the entire thing and put it in the back pocket of his pants, but he knew better. He finally brought himself to open the closet and look around. The first item he picked up and put in the bag was a broken pocket watch that he had found on another excursion in the woods with Adrian. The glass was broken, but he had always marveled at the beauty of the item. It had the inscription Tempus Neminum Mane, which his father had told him in Latin meant time waits for no one. Latin, his father had explained, was a dead language, along with most other languages which had existed at one time or another. The phrase had struck a chord in Julian nonetheless, and he had always loved the watch. As his eyes scanned the shelf that the watch had rested on, they fell upon another object that he had held very dear to his heart, a necklace that had been given to him by his mother on his fifth birthday. The chain was silver, but was not nearly as valuable to Julian as the pendant itself. The pendant was a shield, with an angel carved into the middle of the shield. The reason why his mother had given him this necklace in the first place was because Julian, from the age of three, had constant night terrors almost every night. He would wake up screaming in the middle of the night, sometimes fleeing from his own bed and running down the stairs, either to his parents' room or out the door of the mansion itself, trying to flee the demons who haunted his dreams. His mother had one night told him the story of an angel named Solo. The story that she had lovingly told her son was that Solo was a general in God's army who had slain many demons with his giant flaming sword. One day, God had told Solo that he had a very special job for him to protect a very special boy named Julian McCoy. So from that day forward, Solo's one job was to protect Julian from any bad thing he could think of. Julian had been skeptical of the story at first, but then his mother had presented him with a necklace and urged him to look at it whenever he felt frightened and think of Solo standing next to him, ready to fight off whatever was trying to hurt him. That night, the night terrors stopped, and he had never had a night terror again. For a long time, Julian was convinced that the power came from the necklace itself, 
but his mother soon explained to him that Solo was there with him whether he wore the necklace or not. So he had stopped wearing the necklace and had placed it on the shelf next to his other prized possessions. At this moment, however, Julian felt that old magic that he used to feel when he put the necklace around his neck, and he placed the necklace into the satchel next to the pocket watch. Julian decided that he couldn't start loading the satchel up with other things from his china closet, since there would be no room for rocks and furs and other nature things. So he closed the door of the closet. As he did this, something fell off the top of the closet. He looked at the fallen object on the floor and his hands closed on his grandfather's old flat cap. Stories that he had been told about his grandfather stated that he had begun to lose his hair at a very young age, around 20 years old. He had then started to almost obsessively wear hats, to the point where he had actually started quite a collection. Throughout the years after his grandfather's death, the collection had been lost, all save for this one flat cap. Julian had seen it once in his father's office, and had asked what it was. Smiling, his father had handed to him the cap, and told him his grandfather would have appreciated Julian's collection, and told him to add his grandfather's cap to it. Julian smiled at the memory and placed the cap in the satchel. Putting his grandfather's last remaining hat into the bag reminded Julian of something he could not leave behind. He walked across the room to his bookshelf, which held many prized works that his parents had insisted he read. Books in this day and age were hard to find, so he had read many of these books over and over again. His favorite in the entire collection, however, was actually written by his own grandfather and father. It was a history of Hyde, written from the very first day that his grandfather had started the town to rather recent events in the town's history. Although the book was stored in Julian's bookshelf, the mayor would occasionally come into his room, take out the book, and make a new entry, always returning the book to its proper place. The book was very, very thick by now, but the mayor had told Julian that once he became mayor, it was his responsibility to keep writing in the book telling the story of Hyde for future generations. This is something that Julian had always looked forward to, and he knew that he absolutely had to bring the book with him if he was leaving Hyde. As he finished putting the thick old book back into the pack, Julian heard a loud pop and a loud explosion coming from downstairs. He whirled towards his bedroom door, heart pounding out of his chest as he heard footsteps racing upstairs towards his bedroom again. He held his breath and exhaled violently, as his father burst through the doors again, eyes blazing. We have to go now, Julian, he spit out. No more time for packing. This is our only chance to get out. Let's go. Julian broke into a run and chased his father down the steps. As they neared the bottom, sounds that he had never heard before began to boom below them. Loud, shocking sounds that made him cringe and blink. He had heard and seen gunshots in movies before, but this was nothing like that. The gunshots in movies sounded like ghost whispers compared to these noises. He grabbed his father's arm and yelled above the bedlam. Dad, is that? His father cut him off. Gunshots, Julian. Gunshots and God knows what else. When we get downstairs, I want you to keep your head down and get as close to the floor as you can while running. Don't stop for anything and don't look at anything except my back, Jules. We're gonna get out of this alright, I promise. They hit the bottom of the stairs running, Julian doing exactly what his father told him to do, running in a crouch and gluing his eyes to the back of the mayor. As they reached the great hall, which was the nexus of the house, his father stopped short, catching Julian off guard. The boy crashed into him and sat down hard, letting out an oof as the air was forced out of him. 
The hall was filled with smoke and smelled like charred wood, and a smell that Julian couldn't even recognize. Then the banging started again, and Julian was overcome by the sound. It was louder than anything he had ever heard in his life and seemed to vibrate through his very skull. He was hit with a sensory overload with a combination of smells and noise, and he quickly rolled to his side and vomited. He hadn't felt sick earlier, yet this had proved to be way too much for him. He felt hands go to his ears, covering them somewhat from the noise as his body tensed against this convulsion once more. Through teary eyes, he looked up and couldn't believe what he was seeing. A tall metal robot was pacing in front of him, shooting into the smoky air at unknown assailants. As he looked closer, he realized that the robot had black arms, and a moment later the robot turned and winked at him. It was Archer, but at the same time it wasn't. Archer was wearing something that looked like a cross between a medieval knight and a superhero. A second later, Archer was hit by something and thrown behind Julian. It was only then that Julian realized that his father had clamped his strong hands around his head, shielding him from the noise as best as he could. His father had also dragged him behind a giant felled pillar, which had once held up part of the mansion. Archer crawled over to them as the noise subsided. Silence, except for the occasional piece of debris or wall falling over, fell onto the mansion. The silence was eerie before heavy footsteps fell. A loud laugh that Julian knew anywhere because it always threw chills up his spine echoed throughout the house. Marcus Sykes. More laughter bellowed from directly across from where his clan now crouched. Oh, Mayor McCoy, come on now. We both know that you and your boys can't beat my men. Them two fat ones are already dead outside. That other boy of yours in the truck turned tail and ran as soon as we started shooting. Sykes let out another chuckle, and the icy coldness returned to his voice. Now, Mayor, I gotta be honest. I wanna kill you. I want you to make me kill you. My boss, though, he's got bigger plans for you and your boy. You can walk out of here alive. You have my word. The mayor pulled himself up on his elbows and appeared to think. Sykes, what about Archer? Sykes let out a little snicker. Sure thing, mayor. Your man Archer can walk out of here alive. Sure won't be free, but he'll live. The mayor looked over at Archer, and Archer slowly shook his head. Harold set his jaw and took a deep breath. Sykes, as long as we have breath in our lungs, Archer and I, and even my boy, are better than you and any scum you have with you. If you don't leave now, I'll be throwing dead roses on your grave tonight. As the mayor finished his threat, all hell broke loose again. The walls behind them and the pillar they were all huddled behind resumed being pounded with bullets as Sykes' men pumped everything they had towards the three. Archer moved his armored self closer to the McCoys. I'm going to give them everything I've got. When I start the assault, make a run for the tunnel. If I can fight them off, I'll meet you down there in no more than two minutes. If not, I'll put in a good word for the two of you at the pearly gates. With that, he shot a wink at Julian and stood up. Julian saw a flash of light shoot from his left arm and heard a booming explosion from where he had just heard Sykes yelling from. His father took him by the hand, and they were off again, running along the wall towards where Julian now knew the mole entrance was. As they were running, Julian risked a look back. What he saw stayed with him for years to come. 
Archer in all of his armored glory shooting at their assailants with what looked like a Gatling gun mounted onto the right arm of his armor. He now saw his assailants and they appeared to all be wearing a uniform of some sort. Black pants, black shirts, with black body armor over it. Striking a great contrast was the fact they wore red boots with red gloves and a matching helmet as well. He observed that there were already about six or seven bodies of these thugs laying dead on the ground, with one limping off in another direction for cover, and another laying on the ground convulsing. There were still half a dozen firing directly at Archer, however, and they continued to dent his armor as he advanced on them, firing all the time. Abruptly, from the shadows, a figure detached itself holding what appeared to Julian to be a long, thick metal pipe with a trigger at the bottom. As Julian stared on in horror, he recognized the figure to be Sykes, grinning like a Cheshire cat. He aimed the pipe directly at Archer, and Julian screamed at the top of his lungs. There was a loud hissing noise, and all Julian could see was a bright streak going bolting towards Archer. Archer had already spotted Sykes and was prepared for what he had, however. He skillfully sidestepped and swiped at the streak of light in the same motion, knocking it away. Julian smiled and actually laughed in his relief, but his relief was to be short-lived as the streak of light smacked into the balcony directly over Archer's head. The balcony had been hanging on by a thread since they had entered the hallway, apparently being damaged in the initial assault on the mansion, and now it fully gave way and began its short journey to the Great Hall and Archer Johnson. Archer gave one attempt to leap away from it, but the armor which had proven itself so trustworthy in battle now betrayed him, as he was far too slow from all the weight. The balcony, with all the weight of its wood and stone, came crashing down directly on top of him. Julian screamed with horror as he witnessed this happen, but his screams did not drown out the victorious laughter of Sykes, who walked out towards the rubble holding the still-smoking pipe, which he then cast aside. Julian had been running the entire time he had been craning his neck to witness the fight, and now turned his head and realized they had almost reached the mole's entrance and freedom. Another loud explosion suddenly filled his ears, and he whipped his head back to the hall to see what had caused it. Whatever ammunition Archer had loaded onto his armor was now exploding underneath the rubble which had buried him, and it was sending shrapnel throughout the hallway. As Sykes and his men fled and ducked for as much cover as they could grab, a large piece of shrapnel came flying out of the rubble and made a straight screaming line towards Julian. Before he could react, he felt a thump and a shot of pain go throughout his whole body. His legs went out beneath him as he crumpled to the floor in shock. His father, who had been running hand in hand with him, did not realize what was wrong until he felt himself dragging the boy. He turned back and cried out in alarm as he saw what had caused Julian to fall. A large-sized piece of metal was embedded in his son's right shoulder, and Julian was looking up at him with a glassy expression in his eyes. Without a word, the mayor scooped up his son and dashed the remaining distance to the mole entrance. The gunshot ceased again as he carefully balanced Julian on the edge, preparing to drop him down the slide. Julian's eyes momentarily cleared and looked at his father with clarity. Dad? What? His father cut him off quickly. Shh, Jules, we're almost out of here. We just have to... His father's words were cut off as his body was shaken from behind. Mayor's eyes drifted down and settled on something. Julian followed his eyes down and saw the point of an arrow protruding from his father's stomach.
Julian tried to make a noise, but all that came out was a small groan. The mayor took him by the chin and lifted his head so they could look each other in the eyes. Tell Horace to go without me, Jules, barely whispered. He pulled his son closer in an embrace and whispered in his ear, I love you, Julian. You are the heartbeat of this place. As Julian tried to cling to his father, eyes streaming with tears, the mayor gave him a forceful push backwards into the darkness. Julian stuck out his hand and caught something on the way and held onto it as best he could while looking up and screaming for his father. The last thing he saw before his grip gave out was his father looking down at him and smiling, then blackness as the mayor slammed the entrance shut. His grip gave and he was falling again. He felt the cushioning of the slide catch him and guide him down, but he had closed his eyes and was now openly weeping as he continued his fall. His descent was once again slowed as he neared the bottom, but he was beyond caring at this point. His father was gone. His mother was gone. Archer was gone. The home he had been raised in was in ruins. The piece of metal sticking out of him was throbbing and would likely kill him. He slowly opened his eyes and looked into the troubled face of Horace. Although he looked concerned, there was something underneath that look that comforted Julian. A look of understanding. No panic, just realizing what needed to be done and the urgency to do it quickly. He slowly picked Julian up and looked into his face. Your father and Mr. Johnson? Julian shook his head slowly. Horace's eyes drifted from his face to the jagged piece of metal sticking out of him. You'll not die here, boy. As God is my witness, we will not lose faith that there is still hope in the world. With that, he whirled around and ran faster than Julian had ever seen him run before. They reached the mole as Julian heard a dull detonation behind him. He turned his head and saw wood and stone falling from above, and realized the men meant to go in after them. Before he knew it, he was in back of the mole, and Horace had taken the controls. The glass dome roof closed around them as the engine whirred to life. Julian felt darkness creeping in the back of his mind and knew that before long he would lose consciousness. Determined to keep track of what was happening until he did, Julian propped himself up in the back and looked behind the mole. Three men had made it down the soft slide and were getting to their feet and gathering their weapons. As the first man got his gun to his shoulder and began to fire, the mole roared to life. In seconds, they were hurtling through the tunnel, leaving the three attackers far behind. Julian could not believe how fast the man went from being an immediate threat to an insignificant ant in a matter of seconds in the mole's rear window. Without warning, it seemed as though the entire tunnel was erupting into fire. Incoherently, Julian thought he had died and had trespassed some sort of unknown, unspeakable evil which had landed him in hell thought passed and he realized that the tunnel was exploding behind them. He moved his head towards Horace's back. Horace! Horace turned in the seat and the fire illuminated his face. All part of the plan, old chap. That's not them. It's us. Your father thought of everything. He turned back to the front and decades seemed to pass as the tunnel continued to explode as they passed through it. Never in front of them, always behind them. After some time, Horace whirled in his seat and took Julian's hand. It's about to get real bumpy, Julian. Hold on to me as best as you can. Abruptly, fire seemed to fill the entire view as it cascaded around the entire glass dome of the mole's roof. 
Julian stared in wonderment and then understood that the mole had picked up a great amount of speed, in addition to the dizzying speed it had already been moving at. All at once there was a whooshing noise and a weightless sensation. Julian suddenly realized that they were no longer surrounded by fire, and they had somehow been launched from the tunnel. He looked around and found himself looking at a surreal vision of water rushing towards him. There was an impact, but Julian felt none of it, as Horace grabbed him and held him close. When he opened his eyes, the surrealism of his situation increased as he realized they were completely submerged in the water he had just been looking at seconds before. Fish, terrified of their new neighbors, frantically swam to and fro in the water with no sure plan of escape in mind. Julian again felt the blackness reaching for him in the back of his mind, and this time had no strength with which to fight it. He succumbed to the blackness and went faint in Horace's arms. Thank you so much for joining me for Chapter 3 of Hyde. Next week, we will see where Julian and Horace have ended up, and where Julian takes the rest of his life without his mother, father, and the place that he has called home for the first ten years of his life. So until we meet again, make your story a good story, and maybe someday I'll be telling your story. Be safe out there, everyone. Goodbye. <laughs>